episode 403 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our clients, our institutions, our friends, our family, our pets, really maybe not even ours three weeks from today. Yeah. We've got a great uh, lineup today. Scott Shapiro, who teaches law and philosophy at Yale Law School. Gus Hurwitz, who teaches law at the University of Nebraska. Dave Attell, who is an information security specialist and the founder of the Attell Foundation. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the chief provocateur and host for today's program. Why don't we start again, I think, Ukraine, because I think we've gotten, Dave, to the point where we can kind of see what cyber war looks like when there's a real war on two. And, you know, it's not that different from what we expected, except it's maybe not as, when compared to actual war, maybe not as devastating as everybody was afraid. Well, I think the point, realistically, that you're going to see over and over again is that the war in cyber is exactly what whatever the particular writer expected and predicted. So this is, <laughs> this is definitely a problem we have, is that everyone is saying they're right, even when they had vastly different predictions. And that's because you have a little bit of everything, but nothing is dominating the, the conversation. So you have the recent reporting. I particularly like the article on Wired from Andy Greenberg on Sandworm, which is the GRU attempting yep. but failing to take out a Ukrainian energy district. Now, the fact that they failed is almost as interesting as the fact that they tried. Yes, I agree. And you also have data dumps those are you know being reported upon and in a, i think they're evolving i think it's very interesting what's happening with some of the data dumps you see essentially what is hacktivist irregulars getting data but then that data is published by the ukrainian ministry on its own social media pages and it's relevant it's you know it's here's the exact russian soldiers who were in bucha during the war crimes that's new in my opinion yeah. so there's a lot of new stuff happening, but it's an evolution. It's not a revolution is kind of the message you're seeing. So, Scott, you were, of course, right all along. But would I, you like to tell us how? I swear to God, I'm like one of the guys who did predict this. And, in fact, it turned out. So, I, like, it's true. <laughs> Other people have tried this gambit, but mine worked. So, I, so let, let me tell you my, my take on this is that I, I think – People have been fooled by the last eight years of Russian cyber attacks, particularly in Ukraine, of course, in the United States. I feel like that that has not been a sign of strength. That has been a sign of weakness. That is, if Putin felt he could take over Ukraine, he wouldn't have wasted time harassing the Ukraine IT systems. He would have just invaded. Now that he feels strong, like malware is just one tool among many he has. He can bomb, he can use tanks, he can use guns. He doesn't have to use exploits to destroy civilian infrastructure. He can do what he was, what he, what they've been doing in, like in, in Mariupol, which is just destroying everything. And so I, my own view would be that we will see a lot more cyber attacks stepped up as Russia with 
and in that being the main way of attacking. Well, saying we, did, we didn't really lose. We, right, you, exactly. you still must fear us. Uh, we're just uh, moving to a different phase of attack, uh, exactly. which happens to be withdrawing all our troops or whatever. Yeah. And sinking our battleships. And the submarines, up, upgrading them to submarines, really. <laughs> it's true yeah. that we, I mean, we have, you know, I, probably the other thing that's worth reporting on is we do, you know, you're getting very significant signal from the United States government that, you know, attacks are imminent. You know, that's been true for a number of weeks now. So, I mean... I love that, Scott, that you, like, put a line in the sand. You're like, cyber attacks will definitely increase. You know, that, I think, is, it's useful to, to put these predictions in place so that you know that you are either right or wrong. Yeah, can I say one other yeah. thing, which mm -hmm. is just that, like, we also ought not to forget that, like, Russia has been pen testing Ukraine for eight years. Like, they've been red teaming that country. And I imagine Ukraine, their blue team, Ah. is so is so crackerjack so you know it's like if you if the immune system is tested so frequently and so vigorously then maybe they're you know it's gotten pretty pretty good at uh, repelling attacks I, this reminds me of a, a Taiwanese official whom I heard speak at a very early cybersecurity conference in the 90s and he said you know, we're a small island, we're poor in natural resources, but we do have an endless supply of Chinese malware. And we have seen a, a lot of Russian malware. Let's we One of the things the articles this week point out is that we are seeing a vast variety of new malware. So whether or not it's having the anticipated results, and I think it is having results, some of this is affecting infrastructure that is critical to Ukraine and probably going to be elsewhere. You know, we are seeing a lot of it. So there's a lot of activity. It's you can't say that nothing is happening, which is, I think, one of the issues right. that people had early on. So what about the possibility that Putin will say, well, I, the best way I can show the West that I'm sick of their resupplying uh, the Ukrainians is to launch cyber attacks anonymously, of course, on their infrastructure and let them get a taste of our GRU capabilities first. There's obviously a lot being done in the U.S. to uh, try to bolster our defenses, but people are not good at defending against the threats they haven't seen. And until they've really felt them, there's some uncertainty about how well we'll do. I, I noticed that Dmitry Alperovich expects a pretty serious cyber attack from Russia and uh, offered some ideas for respond. I don't know, uh, Dave, Scott, uh, uh, what did you think of that that proposal? I want to point out he also did it with Sam Schrapp, yep. uh, who is, you know, over at Rand, but has a long history in the space. And, you know, reading the proposal, it's hard to disagree that we should have a plan which I think is the first half of the proposal. Right? Yeah. Like, we should expect this, and we should have a plan for what to do when it happens. And I think that's, you know, sometimes you just have to say it. So there's that. The plan that they propose is, is I would say it's it almost fits very well into traditional international relations theory in the sense that they want something that is temporary and reversible, but also significant and deterrent. I would say those are all tough things. They recommend an internet disruption, I think, in Moscow, although I wasn't sure if they were using Moscow as like a just Russia or Moscow, the city itself, which I think would be better. You want to target things and you want to call your pocket, right? Like a lot of times in international relations, you say, I'm putting the eight ball in the corner pocket and you have to be able to, to do that yourself or you kind yes. of lose. So that was some of the interesting stuff I saw in this. 
I don't know. I definitely agree that we should have a plan. So I just don't, I don't know what you think about the plan itself. So just shutting down the internet in Russia for an hour or six hours doesn't seem very impressive. I mean, first, you'll have to demonstrate how you do that. And that means you've given away uh, a lot of your tools. And the extent to which it will actually scare anybody is uncertain to me. I, 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 I think that's right. I would just say again the point that I made earlier. First of all, Dave is of course right that like you really should have a plan and the plan should be based on a proper diagnosis of the problem. And I think they give the proper diagnosis of the problem, which is that on the one hand, you want to deter without escalating. And I, and so there's a kind of shock and awe but for an hour. And it's a kind of way of kind of alerting that, that more can be done. The reason why I like this proposal is because it's kind of nothing. It's not very much because I think we ought not to get too crazy worked up about the cyber attacks on the United States, what the United States is doing to Russia in terms of the sanctioning of its economy is a million times stronger than whatever cyber attack I think can be thrown at the United States. Obviously, something really bad could happen, but just based on everything that has happened before, it just strikes, you know, striking out at the United States is a sign of weakness again, because it can't fight back in, in traditional ways, and that we ought not to get too wrapped up. The escalation seems to me much more worrisome than the deterrence part. Okay. Well, I, 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 I thought the most interesting development, uh, or at least the, the article I learned the most from, was this adaptive mobile uh, uh, blog post that talked about what the mobile systems operators in Ukraine had done to facilitate defense of the country. And that was eye-opening. And I think it, it has some lessons for us in emergencies in the future. Dave, did you look closely at that? It was, you know, honestly, it is one of my favorite articles this week. It was a great find. Cathal McDade on the Adaptive Mobile blog did a very good detailed analysis of what Ukraine did to protect their mobile networks as the war started. And there's so much in here, from the government giving the mobile networks additional bandwidth, enabling national roaming, automated eavesdropping on calls to Belarus and Russia. They didn't shut off phones for lack of payment, obviously, you know, which is a choice. I mean, that's not a choice that yeah. we made with our pipelines, but it's a good choice. So putting it all together, what you have is a coherent strategy, which is amazing to see. Like, we should emulate this amazing new innovation. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure how it, it sure looks like a good strategy in retrospect. In retrospect, uh, yes, yes, and so, and you're right. They basically they turned the entire mobile network into a free service offered by the state, as far as I can see. It it, it makes perfect sense, which means that the next time this happens, somebody is going to ask, "How do we get at those mobile operators and prevent them from doing what Ukraine did?" Uh, well, so we, we'll have to think about that. That's the attack everyone expected, obviously. But we've also heard horror stories of Russian soldiers going in, taking people's phones, looking at them. And if there's anything, like there's a picture of a tank on there, you know, right. doing bad things. Right. It goes both ways. But I think, obviously, you know, you purely from the policy, you know, the like the look at the mobile network telecom, what you can do with it. Fascinating. Really good story. 
So I, I'll, I'll just yep. give a, a quick shout out. There was a article in Light Reading late last week that is about the a Ukrainian telecom commission and the individual who's been running things there and her efforts to keep the networks up and running. So it was by Ken Weiland, Ukraine telecom commissioner calls for more support against Russian aggression. It wasn't on the one of the articles that we got out in time for us to talk about, but a good plug there because there are individuals who've been on the ground working to keep the networks up and running and not all some soldiers are bureaucrats yes no it's it's great i uh, and th what they did to the russians were stealing people's sim cards and so they said well fine well we won't let you call back to russia unless we do in which case we're listening and it was very clever i'm surprised that they, they couldn't find a way to make people give them their WhatsApp passwords so that they could use WhatsApp and prevent that. But it was nonetheless a, a remarkable uh, achievement. Okay. Well, we've been uh, ducking this long enough. We have to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter. But Gus, I, here's my first quick take. It's not going to work. He's been boxed out with a, a poison pill. So we're only talking about this because we just can't stop talking about Elon. And that's his vision of free speech. We're always talking about <laughs> um, So we, we have it right there. So I, I was thinking, Stuart, as you were introducing this episode, I know you just had the big celebration, episode 400, live and video and all that stuff. This is episode 403. Well, I, I think in 17 more episodes, you should try and have Elon on as a guest. He might join for episode 420, um, as we all know. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's a great idea. That's a, that is a great idea. We'd have to do it in person because i'm not going to ship the dope to everybody so uh, the the big question i the, the, there's so many big questions and they're all stupid questions with this but <laughs> did he intend does he actually want to buy twitter is this all a joke is this a dogecoin uh, a pump and dump sort of thing or I, is this just part of elon being elon but the net positive of all of this is there has been a lot of interesting discussion over the uh, last couple of days about content moderation. Some folks have been coming out. Ethan Wong, former Reddit CEO, he had a great long tweet thread about the difficulties of content moderation. And it's making people who haven't thought about this stuff perhaps think about it in a bit more detail. It's also flushing some hypocrisy on both the right and the left out. So the Elon uh, serving as that sort of lightning rod is always interesting. I do wonder what the litigation coming out of all this is going to look like. I don't know what shareholders think about the possibility of a sale. I don't know. It's entirely possible that the poison pill being executed against Elon. First, he does have five times the amount of money that he's already bid. Maybe he'll fight more, probably not. But if the shares of stock are diluted, is that going to prevent some other possible buyer from coming in? And if that does happen, what will the shareholders think about that? So there, there could be some interesting stuff down the road just resulting from this being Elon Musk as a lightning rod. But a long story short, I think this discussion is the poison pill in today's episode rundown. <laughs> so I, I, I do want to, I do want to invoke the, 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 the rule in Itel's case, uh, uh, and say, this time I really was right the first time because uh, last uh, in the last episode before he actually announced that he was going to make this bid, I said this 
sooner or later, somebody on the right is going to acquire a, uh, a social media and turn it into kind of the Rupert Murdoch version of Fox News on the right uh, and get all of the regulatory benefits from the regulatory state we're creating when the Republicans uh, take power. And so I, I would not be surprised to see somebody else launch a bid for Twitter because they'll be looking in one direction, not the other. And for that person to look for a way to signal that they're going to be Rupert Murdoch. We'll see. But sooner or later, it's going to happen. And it's going to be very hard for the folks on the uh, left to stop. They'll, it will be entertaining to watch. I do wonder, given t Twitter, of course, is what one of the First Amendment free speech hotspots. Universities also are. I wonder when we're going to get Elon Musk, you coming down the, the transom. Well, but I'm not sure he believes in going to, to college. <laughs> so maybe that'll be it. Is, is it you can, you can spend three years uh, inventing stuff and then get a degree. And, you know, there are actually plenty of degree granting colleges who would be glad to make that trade if there's enough money in it. All right, let's leave behind and move to something I, I think reasonably serious, which is pipeline security and the effort to come up with an approach to, to pipeline security which has been riven by turf fights within the government, and they continue between TSA and maybe DHS writ large, and, and the, the Energy Department writ large. Scott, a fair amount of developments in this area, and I'd be interested in your take on where we're going to... So, yeah, so this turned out to be, this is actually a really interesting it's not just an important issue, it's actually a very interesting issue about sec securing the pipeline. And there's a really excellent blog post on Lawfare, which was written by actually our the first cyber fellow at Yale that we hired, the Ido Kilowatte, and I recommend it because it's very interesting. So the whole issue about securing the pipeline, of course, we had last May, we have a colonial, we have the colonial pipeline, which is operates the largest fuel pipeline system in the United States, and it disclosed that it suffered a ransomware attack. You know, uh, you know, as we, we know, it was the business system that was that was attacked, but they shut everything down as a precaution, shut down the pipelines and severely limited gasoline and jet fuel on the East Coast for a couple of days. And that really has forced regulators into thinking, well, how do we mitigate this problem going forward? Before the attack on Colonia Pipeline, cybersecurity regulations for pipeline operators were largely voluntary, and that's changed. TSA, Transportation Safety Agency, wait, no, administration which is a, yeah, okay. They, they issued two mandatory directives. One, which is basically information sharing. If there's a cybersecurity incident, you're supposed to report it to CISA. You're supposed to designate an in-house cybersecurity coordinator, review current practices, yada. And then the second yeah. directive is on specific safeguards to protect the two sides of the, of like the ICS systems, the information technology and the operating uh, operational technology side, things like multi-factor authentication and network segmentation, things like that. What's really fascinating about this, and I did not know this until I uh, re read about it, is that like the TSA is in, is in charge of, of, of pipeline security. I mean, of course, like pipelines deliver oil and gas, but there's natural gas too. And it just seems it's not the most obvious place to put a pipeline security now, part of the problem, and this is what Kilowatti shows in his in his post, which is that 
the, the agency is really understaffed when it comes to security. So these are the statistics. I mean, it's really amazing. So they had 14 full-time employees. TSA did work on pipeline security in 2012, 2013, only one in 2014, and just six in 2018. And now they only, in 2019, they had five, but none of them who did cybersecurity. So they all basically were focusing on physical security. So here we have this issue where you really have a division between physical security, information security, and where an agency that has really been focused on physical security is not teched up, is not staffed up for cybersecurity. And so the Biden administration has been has announced its support to move pipeline security from TSA to the Department of Energy under FERC, uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is an independent commission in, in, the, in DOE, uh, to handle pipeline security, given that, I mean, oil and gas are not just transportation issues, but just larger energy issues, you know, because like gas and natural gas and oil used to generate electricity in the United States. The question is, where it will probably migrate. It seems like it will migrate out of TSA because they're not just they're not built for it, and it seems like there's political interest in moving it to DOE. Can you I, imagine I, I, trying to hire a hacker to work at TSA? Like I just don't <laughs> want to be that recruiter. You know, like yeah. life is hard. So here's I'm gonna I'm gonna be contrarian about this because I used to work at DHS, so I have some insight into these guys first. Transportation Security Agency is always worried about pipeline security, people blowing up pipelines and, and stuff like that from the beginning. But you're right, they were not focused on cybersecurity. Nobody was. I, I mean, I remember the the NERC, that wasn't even FERC that came up with the rules. They, they handed it off to, the, to NERC, which is a private body, and said, come up with some standards and make sure that they are consensus standards. And for security, for bulk power, if I remember right. Uh, and they got, you know, just crap. And my memory is that they said, you have to have authentication. In fact, we're going to make that specific. Your passwords must be six characters long. <laughs> you know, you kind of say, oh, God. Uh, I, uh, because they, too, suffered from 20 years of very successful deregulatory lobbying in this area, and, and there are certainly a lot of problems with regulation of cybersecurity, but they, everybody had that disease until Colonial Pipeline, and now everybody has the cure. A, the lack of capability at TSA is a lot less interesting if you realize that they lean heavily on CISA, which is competent to come up with their, their standards. So I, I do worry that this, this is really just a turf fight with DOE saying we should have it, a, and trading on the fact that when people hear TSA, they remember their last pat down. And and so nobody is in favor of TSA doing anything. But I'm not sure that it makes sense to to turn this fight into anything about cybersecurity. It's just going to leave us with another couple of years of drift. The standards that TSA put out, I don't think anybody would argue. They The first set were if there's a cybersecurity 101, that was cybersecurity remedial education. And then they went straight into the second listing to uh, Cybersecurity 201. Those were those were tough requirements, and it's not clear that people know how to do the, some of that stuff for an operational technology system. I, I would just say that so you raised like a really interesting point, which was that like the the they you would think that the natural place to go would be CISA, 
because they handle critical infrastructure, but they don't have regulatory authority. But as exactly. you but as you point out, does have regulatory authority, but and they rely on the standards of CISA. So you kind of get you can get both. You can do that. Uh, yes. My sense is that authority is a little less than most people think. Maybe it's been, you know, last time I looked was a few years ago, but they were relying on reliability standards, which is not the same as cybersecurity. Uh, and they kind of had to shoehorn a lot. That explains some of the weakness of their original proposals is that they were shoehorning it into something where the law wasn't really completely supportive of a complete cybersecurity set of rules. All right. Well, while we're doing this, I, uh, everybody on the planet, uh, as far as I can see, anybody in the U.S. government that wanted a piece of uh, uh, cybersecurity for pipelines announced that uh, PipeDream had been discovered, and it was ICS control malware. Scott, I, they did not attribute it, and I haven't seen an informal attribution. Is this uh, Russian or is this Chinese? I, 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 you know, I'm the last guy to know. So I don't know who is it from, but let me just say several things about this this malware package that that was found. So several interesting things about it. One is that they found it before it had been used, which is which is great, <laughs> but it actually worked. So that's the that's the first thing. The second thing is that it is it you know it, it has been described as like a metasploit framework, whereby it's not just extendable or as computer scientists would say extensible it can be you know just like metasploit you can add modules to it and it's also designed to be used by script it's really apparently the, the user interface is really good like you see there's a graphics of the industrial control um, systems in front of you like there's a really good dashboard and it's really easy to use the post exploitation tools that they have and that's a, that is really strange and worrisome. And it, it, I, I think to myself, like, did they build this thing, let somebody find it, and then send it out, and then every 16-year-old can use it? I, I mean, I, I don't know. But it is extremely interesting. It's also interesting just from its kind of its cross-platform framework that is it, it, it exploits CodeSys, which is the development framework for programming uh, programmable logic controllers. It also attacks open platform communication, unified architecture servers. So it, 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 it's a really, it seems like, at least from reports, to be a very powerful tool that was found beforehand and that was now reported on and hopefully mitigation can take place. Yeah, so I'm going to ask, I am going to ask Dave to give us a history of modularity and attack tools, because I think he uh, has some expertise there, but I want to get Gus in first. Yeah, so a, a couple of things first. Uh, Dragas has attributed this to uh, the Chernobyl Activity Group, which we is believed to be state-sponsored, state-associated, but the U.S. government hasn't uh, done any attribution there. As Scott says, that this modularity, this Swiss Army knife sort of approach is really fascinating. And the, so a, a couple of things in terms of the interesting capabilities that are being discussed here. First, some 
something like 40 to 50 percent of the known ICS attack techniques and two-thirds to 80 percent of the uh, specific known ICS vulnerabilities are already incorporated into it. So as Scott says, it's very Metasploit-like. Um, Fortunately, uh, for those who have played around with Metasploit, you need to be at least a sophisticated 16-year-old in order to use it, but not much more <laughs> necessarily. But the extensibility is what's really remarkable. And the, the other thing that uh, in many ways is most striking to me about, we've been talking about ICS vulnerabilities for a long time and SCADA, oh no, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. There have actually been very few comprehensive of ICS attacks out there, only a half dozen or so. And this is adding to that in a very comprehensive sort of way. So that that is, I think, a fascinating change. And in the modern era, we talk about platforms. Everything is a platform. And when you have this modular sort of platform-based uh, architecture, th this is a platform than anything. This is a platform for ICS more so here's than a question. specific attack. Here, here's my question, given that description. I, does this look like something that was designed to be used by a nation state or designed to be made public? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Dave? So I have a 16-year-old, and I wouldn't describe anything about him as sophisticated. So, you know, they are rampagers, just pure balls of emotion and pain. <laughs> and they write terrible Python code. But they just have a lot of code these days. It's weird. I, I would say a few things about this just real briefly, which is I think the modularity is not, for me, modularity is not the most interesting part of this. The thing about attacking, you know, industrial control systems is that a lot of times you're doing it very specifically because mm -hmm. you're trying to, like, if I'm trying to do something against a, a plant, I, I kind of have to have a model of what the plant does. And when you look at a tool like this, it really, what if we just flipped all the switches off and then back on again 500 times, right? So it's much more of a brute force approach to ICS, which may have less implications in some senses and may have more implications in other senses, right? So if I'm having, you know, if the water isn't specifically getting poisoned by chlorine or whatever the, you know, more sophisticated attack would be, that's good news because you know, the attackers aren't going to be able to do that with this tool. But what they may be able to do is literally just DOS whatever equipment is running and burn it out. And they may be able to do that on a much wider scale to a lot of different kinds of things that we weren't expecting to get attacked in the first place. And so I think, I don't think this should surprise anybody. Like, this is the least surprising release of all time, but it does feel a little bit like a Russian operator got their box owned and... That is what Defend Forward looks like. That This is exactly what, if you looked at U.S. doctrine, you would expect in the middle of a, you know, ongoing conflict with another state, right? So, not to indicate that we're in a conflict with Russia, but this is what you would expect. Yeah. So, that, that really needs to be both highlighted, underlined, and also uh, uh, a question mark. I th this is an automated platform. This is not meant to be an APT. I'm going to get into the OT systems, and then from there, I'm going to probe the network, and I'm going to figure out the various pathways. I'm going to spend months doing this. This is a launch and forget it style platform, it, it looks like. But Dave is exactly right. That's a stupid way to do ICS attacks, 
but we don't know what state this is in. It hadn't been deployed, so this might still have been in development. And the reports I've seen suggest that it was specifically targeting energy utilities, uh, liquid natural gas and electricity. So perhaps there is some tailoring in when you deploy it, you indicate the sort of a target that you're going after, and it has a configuration that would be more target specific. So we don't know what it would actually look like when it was deployed. Also, we don't know what Russia's cyber weapon procurement policy looks like. This might have looked great in the proposal for funding, right? You can do anything with this. Uh, and so give us money and we'll give you a tool that can do anything. Uh, so possible. All right, so let's beat up the EU a little because why not? It's a palate cleanser at least. The EU is working on cybersecurity or security standards for cloud, which of course is a good idea. And <clears throat> As usual, they are in the process of turning them into a protectionist policy tool. Uh, Gus, can you give us a little bit more on this? This is another poison pill, we could say, with France trying to break the internet. So the basic background here, there are two pieces. First, Stuart, as you mentioned, this is nominally about cybersecurity for the cloud sounds good, we should probably, they should probably, everyone should probably be thinking about this stuff. But there's another cloud involved, the Cloud Act. So thinking back to 2017 era, we had this open question about the Stored Communications Act, whether or not American firms that had data stored in other jurisdictions could be compelled by law enforcement under the Stored Communications Act to go to those other jurisdictions and get that data. And this was going to the Supreme Court and and uh, Congress said, oh, no, we're, we're just going to answer this because obviously we can force Microsoft to go abroad and bring their data back here. So they enacted the Cloud Act to say exactly that. And it turns out that folks in the European Union don't really like that idea. They prefer to have their own domestic laws being the governing law for disclosure of European citizens or European controlled data assets. So this is largely intended to counteract the the Cloud Act, and we could go into a whole riff here about the safe harbor and privacy shield back and forth over the last couple of uh, decades. The US and European Union have different data privacy worldviews, let us just say there. But what this is really trying to do, if you look at what France is trying to do, they're trying to do data localization. They want data to be stored in Europe controlled by companies that are subject exclusively to European law, European principles and values, which isn't a terribly stupid idea. It actually, it makes a whole lot of sense from a sovereignty perspective, but from a business and technology perspective, it's both hard to implement and it makes everything much more complicated. So th this is really, I think, the latest step towards, uh, to use uh, the term, uh, a balkanized internet, a separate US internet, a separate EU internet. This is what we in the United States effectively did to TikTok in China. They want, the European Union wants to do that to all American firms operating in Europe. So it's, it's nice that the French are consistent. I 25 years ago, I was at an OECD meeting on the some internet policy issue. And I remember saying, you know, if you do this, Europe, you'll break the internet. And the French representative said, 
Good. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. It, it, it is just labeling now. It's not, you know, it's a question of do you get the security label or not? It's not exactly legal. But the more interesting thing on this is how they think that this, they escape the Cloud Act. The Cloud Act says if you do, if you're subject to our jurisdiction in the United States, we can serve a subpoena on you and say, cough this information up wherever you have it, which means that if you're Deutsche Telekom, uh, and you clearly have some subpoenaable uh, presence in the United States. All the, the the grandiosity of keeping all your data in Germany uh, is not going to prevent you from being served and forced to cough up data under the Cloud Act. And yet, somehow, everybody thinks if we just partner up with Deutsche Telekom, we're protected. I, it cannot be that they're that stupid. Somebody must have found a mechanism by which they expect to get around the Cloud Act. And I suspect it's Microsoft, which has played both sides of this consistently. They refused, they, they brought the litigation that, that was making it impossible for the U.S. to get this data. They proposed, if I remember, they certainly supported the solution of the Cloud Act and it wouldn't have passed without Microsoft being on board. And now they seem to have figured out that uh, they can live with this requirement that the data stay in Europe despite the Cloud Act. I expect that it's the classic tale of what hurts my comp competitors more is okay <laughs> with me. Yeah. The the discussion that I've seen, and of course this is all very early, is you need to have separate infrastructure possibly owned by uh, separate subsidiaries in order to avoid the requirement of comply the impossible requirement of complying with two conflicting laws. So I expect if you're right that Microsoft or some other hypothetical company has looked at it and said, yeah, we could live with this, the answer is going to be they have infrastructure that is easily separable from the rest of their infrastructure and can be operated by a wholly owned subsidiary. So outside of direct controller liability in the United States under the Cloud Act and their competitors either technologically would have greater difficulties with that or in terms of their corporate structure would have greater troubles with that yeah okay that, that makes sense it's it, I, I think they're 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 running a risk that the justice department will say no we can see through all this corporate mumbo jumbo you've got the data cough it up and we're going to penalize you and we got more litigation going forward but it also does raise questions about microsoft's good faith in putting forward the cloud act as a way of solving the crisis that they had created yeah, of course, from the perspective of many in the European Union and certainly in France, if the net result of this is, oh, wow, Microsoft and no other American cloud provider is going to be able to do business in the European Union, guess we're going to need to come up with a, a homebrew solution. That is the goal for many. Yeah, but so it's sad because they've given up, as far as I can tell, actually having a European, they haven't quite given up, they just failed. This Gaia X thing uh, is not uh, apparently going anywhere. So they are going to be reliant on Amazon and Microsoft and to some extent Google and Deutsche Telekom. You can't even call it a distant fourth. It's just mm -hmm. not in the same ballpark. And so they are going to have to come up with a solution, which means they're going to just regulate our companies to our disadvantage. Okay, speaking of regulating, the Wall Street Journal had a pretty interesting article, I think more of a summary than a, a news story about how cities are regulating artificial intelligence. And, and Dave, there's a lot in that and a lot of different ideas from around the world about how you ought to regulate AI. 
some of them sounded reasonable and plausible. Others sounded uh, highly ideological and biased. But I, I wonder what you thought of the article and the proposals as a whole. Well, the article in the Wall Street Journal is titled, Cities Take the Lead in Setting Rules Around How AI is Used. And I thought there were a number of really interesting things. And probably the first interesting thing in it is how international this article is scoped. Yes. So the, the first cities they talk about, and, and sort of some of the biggest ones, Amsterdam and Barcelona and a few other cities in Europe. But then, of course, they, they drilled down to New York and London and other places that all have very different opinions on how to use artificial intelligence and have had different pushbacks from their citizens. And it's not just what you're expecting when you talk about artificial intelligence in a city in terms of you and I would both focus on face recognition, perhaps, or yeah. being used in a, you know, a court setting or in, you know, you know, Policing. real estate style setting. Right. Like, so that's the sort of thing we would normally drill down on. But of course, the, there's. You know, the broadness of AI's use in these cities is the first surprise in the article, right? So traffic management, hiring, all sorts of areas, you know, they're like, sometimes they're citing, yeah, we use 57 AI models today. And I, I think probably the thing that has been getting confused in a lot of conversations is the technical concept of transparency in AI versus a larger, more social concept of transparency. So when you look at an article like this and they're talking about transparency, they are not talking about being able to explain exactly what the neural network did in order to sort of having an explainable neural network. They're not talking about that. That's a separate whole ball of research that I think is ultimately fruitless. What they're talking about here is explaining almost like a, a little summary of nutrition on particular AI models and giving citizens a right to complain about the AI model. Like they're like, hey, your face recognition mislabels me every time I walk through the door. It's very annoying. I want to complain about it. So it's been a fascinating way. So they're saying, we'd like to tell you which models we use, how we use them, and what their rate of efficacy is as a sort of summary. Now, of course, describing efficacy in a, any understandable way is almost impossible, but at least give it a shot is what they're saying. So that's it's interesting that it's cities and in some cases counties taking this route and not, for example, a state um, or a federal group. Um, and but it's also interesting that this is sort of, you know, how do you integrate this kind of technology into your society on a social basis? It's a fascinating little article, actually a series of articles from The Wall Street Journal. They've done a few of these. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It it. it it tells you a lot more about the cities than maybe about the AI, and it does it, it describes things where you'd say, yeah, sure, why wouldn't I want to know that? Uh, although you might wonder whether uh, you really want to have your tax dollars spent elaborating on that, given the number of people who will actually care. But I, it, yeah, it's here in the U.S. It's bound up in left-right identity politics politics issues, but that's much less common abroad. I, I don't know what the stand on you know, on AI and left right is for Amsterdam, for example. Maybe just giving people somewhere to complain about AI is enough to release the stress valve. Yeah. Maybe that's like, and maybe there's problems you'll discover with your AI model that you had no idea existed because you actually gave people room to, to give you feedback. And, you know, there there is, if I remember right, in the in GDPR, there's this <clears throat> obscure statement that you can't 
use automatic decision-making without a, uh, a human in the loop, essentially. I, and maybe by allowing these complaints and providing these explanations, they are satisfying that obscure requirement that you can say, yeah, there's a human in the loop. If you complain, we'll actually look at it. We may learn that the humans are the worst part of the loop. And yes. I would not be surprised to find that the humans are more biased than a lot of these algorithms. This is clearly true in facial recognition, where the, the, even the super recognizers are not as good as the technology. And, of course, they have more bias because they, they don't know all of the ethnic groups as well uh, as others. Uh, and so, yeah, it's ordinary human beings get, get things wrong on facial recognition about 20% of the time. And uh, now for uh, the best algorithms, it's 0.2% of the time. But people, if you get miscategorized by, or if you don't like the categorization that you get from the, the AI, I, for example, at the border, your next recourse is you're going to meet a human being who's going to try to make the same. And I think getting a track record, you know, even if it's on a per city basis for how well things are working, is going to be super interesting. So yep. it, was a, it was definitely an article worth reading and you know, a subject worth following up on, I think. As is. Okay, so just a couple of uh, uh, quickies, uh, things that I thought uh, were worth reading. There's a long letter from Carolyn Maloney and James Clyburn, who are two ranking Democrats, or, or, sorry, two committee and subcommittee chairs, to ID.me, essentially trying to make the rubble bounce over the IRS's use of ID.me. And it repeats every bad thing that's ever been said about ID.me and then demands all kinds of data from the company. So this is clearly a way of keeping this issue alive. It's a, it's a big favor to Senator Wyden, who first raised this and will likely be following it himself with some kind of investigation. So we can look forward to more disclosures and more bad stories for ID.me. I'm not sure... At the end of the day, I think this is a this is a bad rap, but it, it is uh, clearly a popular one, and I don't see the Republicans pushing back on this too hard, which is usually the reason why some of these investigations fail. And then content moderation story. So here I I, I, I confess this story cuts against my or cuts partially against my views, so I'm obliged to discuss it. This is a study of Twitter and people whose accounts were suspended. Partisan political accounts, either Republican or Democrat, that were suspended after the election. So, uh, and it turns out that if you were a Republican, you were four times as likely to have your account suspended. It was something like 35% of the accounts they studied were suspended, which sounds like a smoking gun for uh, bias in the application of standards, except that they then took a look at how often uh, these accounts repeated citations to factually dubious sites and they found that uh, the republicans were citing four times as or four times as likely to cite, uh, to cite a factually dubious source and you know there is room for arguing about what's a factually dubious source but they seem to have worked pretty hard to avoid just saying oh well if if glenn kessler and the other fact checkers say this is bad it must be bad they actually asked people who had a balance, you know, a balanced set sample of people. Do you think this is a factually accurate site or not? And so I think what we're seeing here is this is this is probably the reflection of the fact that Trump lost the election 
didn't want to admit it. We had enormous amount of bad information floating around there. And if you didn't like the election outcome, or you were surprised by it, shocked by it, and you went looking for reasons, you were going to find it on these sites, not on mainstream media. But I come to remain troubled that 35% of a random sample of Republican sites would be shut down. That's doesn't sound, I mean, I, yes, there was a lot of irresponsibility, but boy, that's a, that is not quite the democracy I thought we had. So I'm troubled by this, but I'm prepared to believe that these figures are justifiable given the particular climate that we had after the election. All right. So uh, that's as close as I'll get this time just to admitting that I was wrong. But I might have been. All right. Stuart, we started off with Dave saying everyone's going to say that they were right. Uh, and now you actually, that's a counterexample, and so you win the Integrity Award today. Well, I, I'm not quite the, over the edge, but <laughs> I am prepared to, to, to say I'm hanging 10 at least. Uh, all right. Uh, Scott, thanks very much. Yeah, Gus, uh, Dave, this was terrific. Cyberlaw Podcast, I, I want to say, is hiring. We're looking for a paid intern who would like to help us with the substance and especially the production of the podcast. Uh, so if you know somebody who's interested, send a message to Cyberlaw Podcast at Steptoe.com. As always, I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music, and this has been episode 403 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. <laughs>